This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Sebastian Barry, author of the novel Old God's Time. I always think it's much, but you're much better writing out of your stupidity and your not knowing and your deep ignorance of the world, because that's where that's where the singing answers will come if they're going to come at all. We'll be back with Sebastian Barry after these essential words. So June 2023 marks the 10-year anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor. And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before, or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, Well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. 
Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash first draft writers. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers. Please stay tuned at the end of the interview. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with Irish playwright, poet, and fiction writer Sebastian Barry. He was named the Laureate for Irish Fiction from 2018 to 2021. His novels have twice won the Costa Book of the Year Award and the Independent Booksellers Award. He had two consecutive novels shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, A Long, Long Way, and The Secret Scripture. Some of his other novels include Days Without End, A Thousand Moons, and The Temporary Gentleman. He lives in County Wicklow in Ireland. His new novel, Old God's Time, tells the story of a recently retired policeman named Tom Kettle, who has settled into a new home overlooking the Irish Sea. In the nine months since he's been retired, he has barely seen or spoken to another person and seems to spend his days mired in fond memories of his family, his wife June, and their two children. One day, two former colleagues turn up at his door asking him questions about a decades-old case Tom has never come to terms with, and the mention of the mystery sends him deeper into his memory and his past. We began the discussion with me asking Sebastian Barry about the trajectory of his work as a fiction writer, poet, and playwright over his lifetime. And you've written so much over your life in so many different genres, and I'm curious if when you go to write something new, if that is either consciously or subconsciously on your mind when you start with a new topic and picking the genre, like how does the past weigh on your present when you start writing? Well, in one way, it's, it's of no use to you whatsoever. This is one of the mysteries. You think having written 12 or 13 novels and 14 plays, whatever it is, and some books of poetry that you might have a, a head start for the next book, but it doesn't seem to work like that. When I was just finished with university and living in a, a room at the top of a house on Leeson Street in Dublin, uh, in a time, of course, where there was no work uh, of a meaningful sort, so I just decided I'd better do something, so I was writing. You know, I'd get up in the morning and by evening have a short story. And it just seemed to me quite miraculous that, that, that you could spend your day in that way that you could bring something into the world, whether it was good, bad, or indifferent, who knew that had didn't exist the day before. And I've never really lost that sense of it. And I, I've always, I always feel like I'm just starting out and um, have never written before in a curious way. And I, I look back on the other books, literally as if they were written by somebody else who did somehow for a moment know what they were doing, hopefully. Uh, but I don't have that. I don't carry the the electric charge from other books. The charge comes from just simply being alive in a particular time 
And that seems to create the necessary, necessary, necessary sense of emergency to make something because it, in, in a lot of, it, a lot of it seems to me, they are urgent notes sent back to the gods, uh, almost questioning them, maybe even accusing them slightly uh, and asking for a comprehension. So some, sometimes I think, I mean, I was lawyer for Irish fiction for three years. So, uh, and I, it always struck me that, you know, I didn't know a lot about fiction. Uh, wasn't going to be very helpful to anybody uh, technically, because it, for me, it's entirely instinctive. And I always feel 22 doing it. I always dream. I always have the same dream that someday, this dream I used to have in Paris when I lived there, that I'd go into a bookshop and find a book by me in the shop. And always in the dream, I would have no idea what the contents of the book were. But I would feel very happy to see this book. And in a way, that's all I've been doing is trying to dream, bring those dream books into real bookshops. But I don't have any ammunition, you know, I don't have any um, assistance. There's no army of books behind you, you know, that they're just, they're just shadows haunting shadows more than anything else. Yeah, I feel like in a way, I mean, this is kind of a metaphor for what you were saying about the dream of seeing the book. I feel like my body is like that. Like tomorrow my body will still be here or the next day my body will still be here. I hope, you know, you never know when the day is, it won't be. But like all the contents, all the things that's going on in my mind and my organs, I just have no idea. And sometimes it's like when you think about that, it's like overwhelming the trust we have in just making it through this life as a human being. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, just last night, I mean, our kids are grown and gone. Um, but last night I was just in the, the house as usual with Ali, my wife. I was just having this, trying to make myself imagine what it was for her to live here in these spaces, breathing in and out her own breath and seeing me as a, you know, an outside person outside of herself, obviously also moving through the spaces and what priority, what priority she put on me or, just to try and see the whole experience of being here through her eyes, which seems to me the radical, the radical business of fiction. I mean, that's why it's so difficult in a way, because you have to be willing to pass over into somebody else's full existence. You know, we mustn't talk about making things up or, or inventing things. We actually really need to fully possess another heart and soul and write out of that. In order to do that, maybe though, Mitzi, it might be better for you, for a writer, to, to have only the vaguest sense of themselves, to have the only slightest sense of their own corpor corporeality, their own existence in a space. And so much of a writer's... Um, 
present moment, obviously, disgracefully in a way, is taken up with, you know, remembering those moments in childhood or those tracts of country that you crossed as a child, people you knew as a child, maybe, or just your mind drifting away into other times. So, I mean, we're not very Zen-like creatures, are we? We're not, you know, beautifully centered in the present. Uh, we're not the best people to ask to be smelling the roses. Uh, although I do try to do that. I suppose one should try as well to be living and alive in the present moment. Ah. <laughs> I think too, like you were, you were saying like to have the vaguest notion of, of who you are. Um, there's so much, I think, hunger involved with being a writer and being curious about the psychology of what it means to be alive as some other being. And that hunger is, I mean, hopefully in a way it's insatiable. I mean, it is about empathy, but it's, it's also about such a deep curiosity that I think that some people can't develop. They're like born with. It's also a form of greed of, of, um, desiring other existences. Um, my mother was um, an actress in the Abbey Theatre, but in her private, and she was a very powerful woman in the theatre. In her private life, she was much quieter, but she was very interested in seances and uh, Ouija boards and all the rest of it, uh, which is rather actually, I suppose, but um, she peopled our childhood really with ghosts more than the living, because we didn't see too many living people um, apart from each other. Uh, I, I think, you know, there's another aspect to it is that, which did strike me a lot when I, uh, when I was laureate, which is a sort of a public role. Um, people have an enormous reverence for writers. Um, and maybe in Ireland, now that we've lost our reverence for bank managers and priests uh, and all the rest of it, uh, we need something to have reverence for. But in a way, the more you pay attention to the writer, the living individual, it's probably the, the less good the effect will be on their work because that, that slight vanishingness of the personality is actually very helpful to the writer. And I always think it's much, but you're much better writing out of your stupidity and your not knowing and your deep ignorance of the world, because that's where that's where the singing answers will come if they're going to come at all. I mean, how on earth would you do anything out of things you know, absolutely useless to you, and anyway, probably would end up with white pages. But we live very remotely here in the Wicklow Mountains, and. Uh, you know, we have a long lane coming up to the house, so we have a sort of protectedness. Ali's a screenwriter, so it's just the two of the, the two ravens here in the house. Uh, it kind of suits you as a writer, you know, to be to be let's let's say to be um, mysterious and anonymous to yourself. Well, in um, in your novel Old God's Time, you're telling the story of Tom Kettle, who is a retired policeman, he investigator, detective. He um, he lives outside of Dublin by the sea. He's retired and he's 
we're, we're kind of unmoored a little bit as we're reading about him because it's such a, it's third person, but it's so close to his interiority and it's so much a stream of his consciousness and we're not quite sure about his level of dementia and what he's remembering and we sort of learn kind of conflicting stories about his life but the the basis is there's a lot of trauma there for him and his wife he served in the military he was an orphan and so we meet him when he's 66 nine months out of retirement and you follow him I mean you're such a keen observer of what he sees and I wanted to ask you about the finesse involved in in bringing a reader along when you're writing stream of consciousness and also for you like did you have moments as a child that taught you that sort of observation like how did you gain that well that, that's a beautiful question I I think when I was a child by nature I was very much in love with the people around me and my mother and father and my sister and some close relatives who were allowed some access to us to be my great aunt and my two grandfathers because my parents were almost bizarrely private people very few people came to the house um but but that love i think then became challenged by a certain alarm we had as children, my sister and myself, which I've tried to write about. And uh, the alarm coupled with maybe a child's love being marauded across in some way, as if it was a country to be blighted or denuded or whatever grown up sometimes do to kids leaves you in a certain place of vigilance the reason i feel grateful to tom kettle the character in the book and indeed the reason i wouldn't be so discourteous to him as to diagnose him you know is that um after all these years after all these maybe 50 60 years um he allowed me finally to talk about to write about the things that have troubled me most as a living person and as a citizen of my own country and uh, for instance for instance clerical child abuse so-called clerical child abuse i mean it's the phrase is too comfortable for me but that's what it's called um all these matters i was able to speak of i mean the whole point is speaking rather than writing you speak of these things at last you might say because um even the child even uh, the troubled children of the world the first thing they're told is to say nothing about anything and that whole injunction uh, laid upon you as a human person especially in a family setting Mitzi I don't know how often you've said to your siblings or whatever or, you know don't tell so-and-so about that or that whole issue of not being allowed to speak about probably the matters you really needed to speak about was resolved for me in a way in, in writing this book because Tom Kettle was able to and and to speak and because I was so grateful to him it did lend me a kind of 
hypervigilance, just watching him, seeing him, hearing him, just watching him bang around his little flat, you know, bumping into the furniture. I mean, he doesn't even want to turn the light on at night because he doesn't want to disturb his furniture. I mean, I don't know what how you diagnose that, but he is a man, a man under the most extravagant levels of stress. Let's put it that way. So if if you would diagnose him as a friend, you would say he's a person in dire need of being seen and heard. So that's what I tried to do for him as his writer, you know, or his amanuensis or his witness. It's a better word, witness. So I try to be witness to him. And if you're going to be witness to somebody in my heavens, you know, you better you better be paying attention and you better be on your best behavior and you better have your loins girded and you better be good for the job, you know, because um, in that world of survivors, which he belongs in, survivors of abuse, um, one of the best things you can do, I, I think, might be wrong, is is any sort of allyship. And if the book, what the book means to me is, is just an act of witnessing and an act of praising. You know, even when he's making the dreadful, um, what he calls Welsh rarebit, you know, what he's making is actually not Welsh rarebit, it's, it's, it's um, toasted cheese, but he thinks it's Welsh rarebit. Even that, you know, sort of delighted me because, um, because it was particular to him, anything that he owns or anything he was thinking or doing. As you say, it's in the third person. So I had the option to withdraw, didn't I? And um, on, on occasion and uh, say something else about him. I very, very rarely did so. I was very affected by Damon Galgut's novel, The Promise, which won the Booker Prize a few years ago. Uh, because he actually did withdraw from his third-person narrative uh, into a first-person narrative and then into a kind of uh, omniscient voice narrative, you know, almost George Eliot-esque, but with with his own wonderful, edgy, almost acidic uh, form of insight that Galgut has. But And, and I, w- I was tempted by that, you know, and there are probably a couple of moments in the book where I just needed to say something about Tom that he couldn't say for himself. But apart from that, I, w- I was just his witness. I was desperately keen to bring my best game to Tom Kettle. You mentioned earlier that this was it was really meaningful for you to take on these issues that have plagued Ireland Um you know, mm. the, the scandals with the priests, the abuse and the just the way that they got away with it for so long, like mm. just weren't being punished. And I was thinking, like, sometimes I feel like, you know, I do an interview a week that sometimes somehow they're like matching and, and talking to each other. And last week I was talking to an author who was writing about the Holocaust and we had this discussion mm. about, there was a scene that she wrote that she really didn't want to write because in some ways mm. it felt like banal, but then when you think about trauma, you have even if every book about the Holocaust has this scene, you can't really ignore yeah. it. And so no. and it's all still unique. And and it made me think about 
you know, taking on this issue that I'm, I'm, I'm sure has been written about and talked about in the news so much and how mm. you how you want to tackle something that has been discussed, but is so like there's no end to how much we should talk about it. Exactly. And it's how you talk about it and what is the result of that talking. I mean, it's it's fascinating that, you know, you were having this other conversation a week ago. My wife, Ali, has done a lot of work with Holocaust Awareness Ireland. She's on their committee and she she's she's an um, Irish Protestant herself, Presbyterian person. But uh, she grew up in in the Jewish district of of Ireland, which would be Rathfarnham. Her mother grew up in Little Jerusalem, which was the inner city part of Dublin, where people came when they were fleeing from pogroms initially in the 1890s and then, uh, of course, the Second World War. But um, um, the, you know, we hesitate, don't we, with, with the Holocaust because it's such a huge thing. Like it's a solo thing in history and it's dangerous and difficult to compare anything else to it. Although when I was reading Native American history for our previous book, A Thousand Moons, I was beginning to wonder, you know, if this wasn't a close correlative, although drawn out over two or three or four hundred years, the destruction of Native American culture. And I know Native American culture still exists and, and it is still thriving, of course. But um, and the the pri the miniature nature of child abuse, which is, well, the maximum and the minimal nature of it the large priest and the tiny child. Uh, so people will talk about what they call clerical child abuse. They mostly they talk about the priests, of course. And but there's there's a natural reluctance to be specific. There's a natural reluctance actually to describe. And in my Wimbledon mode, you know, it's my duty to be precise. I owe it to Tom. I owe it to the people I know who are abuse survivors. Um, there's nothing more heart-stuffing or mind-altering or mood-altering than actually contemplating for a moment the visual nature of a lot of these instances of what we call abuse where a large male person is approaching a small child of whatever gender in order to do something ferocious to them that the child knows nothing about cannot comprehend and it's the same drawing back we draw back from that instinctively in a way i mean i do myself i think i'm reading a book just now by Christine Keneally, which is just out in America, called Ghosts of the Orphanage. And this is like research in reverse that so often we do. You know, I could have read this book for old God's time, but I'm reading it now with, you know, absolutely ferocious instances of murder of children in Australia and America, uh, and I'm sure in Ireland too, these murders that took place that were never itemized the of course the other aspect of this for tom kettle is that he's been a policeman and um in ireland um 
I don't know if this has bearing on. I mean, I have a very in Ireland. You know, if you in those times, if you were sent to an orphanage, you were sent by the the judiciary. <laughs> the people who were designed to protect you sent you to these places, and if you ran away, the people who brought you back were the police. The people who are supposed to protect you <laughs> were bringing you back to your hell and weren't believing you. So it's a special part of the book for me that that Tom himself has been a policeman. It's as if his um, public self is one thing. And I think he's been a good policeman. He's not a policeman who has ended up cynical or anything. It's a different thing to his private self. And that private self, you know, if you're going to justify the making of fiction, you could say, well, it's the science of the private self, isn't it? It's when you go in, Mitzi, and are content to hear the details of the things that have happened to somebody. And I've, I have a friend um, in Germany who a million years ago, we, we tried to make a go of it together, but we've remained friends, I mean, over 40 years. And she's a writer called Alexandra Senft. Her grandfather was hanged in his boots for being a go-lighter in Yugoslavia and responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of Jewish people, for the deportation of Jewish people. And she's tried to write about that in Germany and what that means. And of course, her family, parts of her family have ostracized her for it, naturally, because she is, she is going forward towards the thing that we draw back from. I was very afraid publishing this book, I'll be honest. And, you know, for a few days before it was published, I was having to go out to do my first event. I was actually having very vivid nightmares because I didn't think, uh, I didn't know if people would, whether people would just draw away. And I came out uh, into this theater in Dublin to talk to 400 people. And the honey of love and openness that poured out of them onto my head was really quite shocking and overwhelming. And there is a moment where people, or there is a sort of prompt you can give for people to move forward. And then when they do contemplate the true horror of the thing, whether it's the Holocaust or an abused child or Native American history, there is paradoxically a kind of joyous upsurge in the heart because, because this Everest of horror has been in front of you and you've climbed it. This thing of sadness has been frightening you with its load of cloud and its terrible weather. And you've braved it, you know. And that's what I felt. I felt in, with the experience of publishing the book, I've been deeply impressed by the bravery of readers, you know, who are able for it. Time and again, somebody has said, you know, this is almost unbearable. A Kit DeWall, the Irish writer who was born in Liverpool, she says, you know, I wanted to keep reading and I was desperate to stop. You know, what sort of book is that, Mitzi? But it's exactly in a way my experience of, of writing it. Because, of course, as the writer, 
aren't you the first reader of the book? And indeed, in the writing of the book, it's probably the last time you will read it properly, because it's the last time it will be unfolding in front of you in a way that seems like reading. I mean, proofing a book is not like reading it. But you need a sort of courage to write it. I'm curious of, you know, you were talking about precision. And it strikes me that there's something really um, like a high wire act about this book that is both precise and incredibly hazy at the same time. So you have these beautiful metaphors. Like I don't have the, it in front of, in front of me right now, this particular line, but Tom is walking down the street and he says something about how memories are ambushing him everywhere, which was, Mm. it was such a, a beautiful metaphor, but also about his early, you know, British military experience and you and you have other lines like um, he was in conversation with the police, I think, that came to his house. And he said, you said he knew there was almost always comedy struck in the breast of human affairs quivering like a knife. So you have these just beautiful, clear moments. And then it's also his his mind. It's a very watery book, if that makes sense to you. So just well, he's by the water, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. So I was curious if, if me asking if that was like a high wire act, if that makes sense. Oh, I mean, hugely. And um, I mean, it was bad enough with Days Without End, where you know, I had to spend a year reading every available book I could find about America in the eighteen fifties and sixties, and trying to have some sort of idea how Thomas McNulty in that book would, why do I call everyone Tom? I'm not quite sure. Anyway, Thomas McNulty uh, would speak, you know, in America. And all those things were difficult. But the difficult part of writing a book almost has to be that time when you're reading other books, reading your way towards your book. And then maybe there's a long period you wish it were a short period, but probably going to be a long period where you're not writing at all. And are you a writer then? But you're waiting. So you're sort of a waiter. You know, you're not even a a nice waiter serving food to people. You're just waiting in a state of stupefaction in your workroom. This very place where I'm talking to you now uh, for, for the book to start. If you're faithful to that waiting, and if you're willing to put in those seven or eight months of being almost humiliated in your workroom when the blasted thing isn't there, then, you know, with the help of God and a few policemen, as we say in Ireland, maybe then um, it won't be, the actual writing won't be have that difficulty. It will seem as if, you don't, you know, I don't know how you feel about journey. Sometimes I dread going away to do something. Maybe, you know, American book tour or whatever. You're on your own for two weeks and gosh, you know, how you're going to be having a breakdown in San Francisco or whatever. But when you get your clobber on and when you have your ticket bought and you're on the airplane and you're heading out and you meet the lovely people and, you know, then it's not, it's not, that difficulty is not realized in the actual doing of the thing. If it were, then you probably shouldn't be on that book tour or if it were in the writing of a book, you probably have started too soon. I knew there were things that Tom had in his mind that he wasn't going to talk about even to himself. And it's only the coming of the two policemen that 
undoes those wonderful ropes of secrecy, those boxes. It opens all those boxes that he's carefully closed. You know, in his in his little flat, he has all these boxes of unopened unopened boxes of books. You know, at the end of the book, at the end of the novel, he takes them out and puts them up on shelves that he has got made for himself, which is sort of um, illustration of you know where he is towards the end of the book. But he has all these things still in boxes, and he doesn't want them out because if they're out, then he can't sit in his wicker chair and look out on the sea. Uh, and Dorky Island, very beautiful vista, and he's so happy to be there, and he's so glad to have his little pension, and he just feels he can do it now, and he can just, and then these two blasted lads come to talk to him, and of course he loves them coming to talk to him because he admires them and all that, you know, it's not straightforward like that, but the dreaminess of the book and the unmooredness of the book is Thomas's unmooredness. And I and my all my whatever skill I have had had to be in the service of that and not to try fatally to explain or why, you know, why is it that sometimes he's seeing his landlord, Mr. Tomlety, in the present, which is the mid 90s. And sometimes it seems to be a version of Mr. Tomlety that would belong more properly to the 60s. Now, Einstein might have a an explanation for that, that Tom is slipping among just the um, time time events that are all happening always at the same time. So, he, you know, it could be possible to do that if you're under enough stress. But I didn't want to be saying that. I didn't want to be explaining anything. So the nerve I had to keep was to be wholly at his service, as I said, and not try and be cleverer than him or more knowing than he was. So that that's a, that's quite a t ask for a writer, because our instinct, isn't it? Our instinct is to clarify everything. Our instinct, in a way, is to straighten everything up. Our instinct is to put the dishes in the dishwasher, wash the damn things, and take them out again and put them on the shelves. But you know, I wouldn't like to describe Thomas's. Uh, understanding of a dishwasher because it would be probably result in the breaking of all the dishes so yeah to be true to that was that was my but that's you know what am i saying i mean it's a privilege to be that scared as a writer isn't it you're being asked to do something you simply can't do uh, and don't know how to do it and then you know the devil take the hindmost you just go and do it because that was the glorious thing you were given to do in the world, you know? And it beats digging ditches, which I've also done. <laughs> That's hard work. So how do you, like on a technical level, and this might happen mm -hmm. in the final editing for you, especially in a book where it's stream of consciousness, how do you know what's essential and what's not? Because the way that memory works and consciousness works, it's swirling. It goes back and forth and back and forth. And you could totally argue mm -hmm. that, of course, every book is going to have paragraphs that aren't essential, but they just mm -hmm. add weight. So what's your process of of sussing that out? Uh, well, my first idea of what I could do in the world was um, to uh, take over from Bob Dylan when he was finished, you know. I wanted to be a singer-songwriter, and uh, but should Bob never put his guitar down, so he didn't leave any room at all for that. So, uh, and, and I said, because the answer I would say, it, it, I would say, 
the answer is a sort of musical understanding of your what you're doing. That's why, you know, I might get a chapter or in this case, I had, I think, five or six pages at the beginning of the beginning of the book for about a year and a half. And that's all I had. But I was very happy to have those pages because it established for me, at least, the whistle tune of the book. Or what is the bird song of your book? What sound is your book making? And is it jazz or is it, um, you know, old timey music or is it Mozart or what the hell is it? You've just got to establish what it is. It really doesn't matter if it's so-called high or low music. It just has to be music of some kind. Uh, it, it can be, you know, a child banging on a table. That will be music enough almost for a book. But um, so that's established then. And what you're waiting for is literally the next note. I think I had the first sentence of Days Without End just before the, the actual writing of the book. I had the first chapter. I had the wrong first sentence. I put in a sentence at the beginning, the method of laying out a corpse in Missouri sure took the proverbial cake. That's all he said. And the whole book, then, if you tilted that sentence a little bit, you could feel the whole book lying in behind it for me. It was, I could just see it stretching away because it got the right sentence. And it's that, it's like a musical. What belongs in the book will belong musically. It will have a relation to the rest of the book and it will be the same. I mean, it'll be the same, whatever you're, you're you know, uh, Max Brooks' uh, Violin Concerto Number no. 1, which is one of my favorite things, makes you think, or any concerto or any symphony, makes you think about, well, why do those notes belong together and why why do you follow um an andante passage with a chart so you know what is that there must be some radical innate part of the human brain that that desires that that asks for that and i see i see a book in those terms and again i'm not you know it's not to aggrandize novel writing because it can be just Tin whistle tunings. It doesn't have to be anything grand, but if you, it, but it's got to be something. And we can love, you know, we can love um, a Ralph Stanley song, "Oh Death" or any of those. Oh Death, won't you spare me over for another year? You, you can love that as much as you could love Mozart, because it's actually music that that comes in the same door into your soul and heart uh, as, a, as a piece of Mozart. Uh, and that's how I know something belongs in the book because I feel it has the proper musical relationship to the rest of the book. Apart from that, Mitzi, I don't know nothing. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> One of my favorite lines in the book, it, it happens at the end and it's sort of like, you know, maybe it's about distilling, you know, like making making the the most pure form out of flowers like if you're making an essence and in the end you know the in deeply interior to tom i think he's floating in the sea when he says this well when the the words come but it says suddenly all the things he loved about this life as opposed to the things that had hurt and oppressed him filled his heart and the line goes on but i just like stopped when i read that I don't know if you remember mm. writing it 
and if that was very important to you about where you put it. But it was very, it was like a sublime turning point almost. What what I remember about that part of the book was, you know, having, to, you know, we've discussed the dreaminess of the book or the unmooredness or the unhinged parts of the book. I knew he was always, he had to move towards a description finally of, and we can't even talk about it, but what had happened to to somebody by agency of himself in June. So this is the thing he had to actually, and he know, he doesn't talk about it very precisely. He also talks about that in strange terms, but he does talk about it. And once um, the three things that would have killed, that could have killed him, once he has gone through that at the end of the book, I, I thought we were in a place of of clarity and non-dreaminess and that he had actually was in a state of, of I mean, I, at that point he felt to me as a, an heroic person and that he was, that his he had called on his courage and he had met his difficulties with his courage. So in that sense, he was entitled to that line you've just spoken, that that's what floods back into him, what floods back into him having told his story, even though he's told it to no one, as I think the book says, is not bitterness and anger and despair, but just pure and pure memory of love and the things he has loved and the things he has liked. I mean, the things we like in the world are sometimes even more important than the things we love. And he that's what he that's his harvest. That's what comes back into him. And, and that's what allows him the ending, I think. I mean, however, on whatever terms you view the ending, which of course we can't discuss, um, to me that's very precise. It, it is happening. It doesn't matter where it's happening or how it's happening, if it's happening. None of those things matter. It is happening to him. And and that's that's his victory. That's what he's gained from the ordeal of the book. I had a temptation, um, you know, rather like Finnegan's Wake, to place the first chapter again after that last chapter. Just to show that in a sense, you know, this is a book, this is a fictional world, which can go around in a circle. And I didn't do that because I thought it was a bit silly or sillier than some of my other decisions, as per that way. Um, but it does intrigue me that a few people have commented or said that they finish the book and then they just go back and start it again. Because I think that is the impulse, is to go back through what he's been through with the eyes of the ending, you know, which, of course, he doesn't have, uh, Tom Kettle, nor will ever have, but the reader can have it. And that's, what I think, when you could start to talk about the great privilege of the reader, who may be confused as Tom, who may be bewildered at times, but at the same time has a fuller, inevitably has a fuller comprehension of the whole business than Tom Kettle does. And, and I think that's why, you know, readers probably should be reverenced more than writers. Because readers are the great harvesters, they're the great gatherers. 
They're the, they're the men and women who go out with the scythes to cut the wheat that you've planted, you know. They do all the work, the real work. So I had uh, one more question, which is if you wanted to talk a little bit about the title, it comes towards the end of the book. You have a, a sentence where you refer to it twice. The The opening, the beginning, the first part says, things once fresh, immediate, terrible, receding into old God's time. And I think there is, a, I don't know if you had the uh, title or if that line came, but just kind of what it means to you. Well. Um as it happens, and there are no coincidences in the world. But my dear friend, uh, Dennis Monaghan, the local carpenter, who is a genius, was doing some work here at the time I was writing the book. And I went to see him about, you know, the windows uh, and was talking to him in his workroom. This is when I found the title. And so the title was The Cigarillo Man, when I, when I was going to Dennis to talk about windows. And just in passing, he used the phrase about something in his life or whatever. He said that was, but that's old God's time. And I thought, oh, I mean, I'm talking, I'm sitting there talking to Dennis with one mouth. My other, the mouth in my head was, was saying, oh, the title of the book. So that's literally how it happened. And by just by chance, he was in the house today. So I'm quite amazed you're asking me, but I don't know if you have the phrase in America old God's time. But in my grandfather's generation in Ireland, and to a certain degree, my own imagination as a result, it is a phrase. And something that happens in old God's time, you could say, you know, but that was years ago, that was in the 50s and old God's time, or you could say, well, or people now might say, oh, you know, it happened in the 1980s, old God's time. What it means is when things were completely different and other forces uh, came, were, bring, were bring, brought to bear on society, and it was just very different then, and it's long ago. I mean, it's a lovely phrase. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks yeah. to you as a writer or influenced you? I mean, if I had to stand up against the wall you know, with the firing squad pointed at me and tell and say what my favorite writer is, it would it probably would be Joseph Conrad, uh, who is obviously very interesting, has had a very interesting fate in modern times, because people have immense problems with Joseph Conrad, especially in the universities. But that doesn't take away from because of his colonial outlook, and the way he was writing about Africa and his day and all the rest of it. But that doesn't take away, can't really take away from the fact that we know when I was 22 in Paris, I was reading everything he wrote. And my favorite, well, the most, um, the book I'm most glad I read, let's put it that way, when I was 22, was Victory. And Victory is about a man called Axel Heist, and his and the woman he finds sort of inverted commas fallen woman lena and they're living together on an island with all sorts of forces being brought to bear on them but if i were to explain the atmosphere of the first page say of old god's time which is very detached and rather conversational 
unlike you might say the rest of the book, then that strategy would have its origin in reading something like this, which is the first paragraph of Victory, which in no way represents the book. And yet the very curious chattiness of it brings you into the book. And this is what he says, is all he says. It's set in the South China Seas. So there is, as every schoolboy knows in this scientific age, a very close chemical relation between coal and diamonds. It is the reason, I believe, why some people allude to coal as black diamonds. Both these commodities represent wealth, but coal is a much less portable form of property. There is, from that point of view, a deplorable lack of concentration in coal. Now, if a coal mine could be put into one's waistcoat pocket, but it can't. At the same time, there is a fascination in coal, the supreme commodity of the age in which we are camped like bewildered travelers in a garish, unrestful hotel. And I suppose those two considerations, the practical and the mystical, prevented heist, Axel heist, from going away. That's a marvel of a first paragraph. And yet it sounds like somebody just talking to you in the most friendly way, you know, in the nicest bar you've ever been to. And then, of course, the book ends with Axel, well, I shouldn't spoil it for people, but Axel and Lena literally being burned alive on their bed. So how do you get there from that first paragraph is to me, you know, one of the wild challenges of, of writing a book and the glory of writing a book that you can go from that to that, that point to that point. So there you are. Can you read something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? I read a paragraph that I was glad I wrote or I was glad it was there when I got to it. Because that's more my my experience of writing a book is you reach parts of the book. You know, again, Pache, Einstein, they, they were there already. But your job is to reach them. Just because they're there already doesn't mean you can't miss them. You could easily do that. So it's actually be there. And it's just uh, the end of the chapter where his next door neighbor, who is a cellist, uh, is playing him the Col Nadre, also by Brooke, whom I mentioned earlier. Uh, Brooke was, you know, a large, uh, comfortable German Protestant person who managed to make an absolute beautiful foray into, you know, the great Jewish uh, cantor song of of Colin Adre, just the tune, and made it into this beautiful piece for the cello. It was also in the book um, a secret celebration of my friendship with a man called Stephen Israelis, who is one of the greatest living cellists, but also happens to be a friend. Uh, and I think just as a matter of you know, a good idea in the world is to try and be the greatest living something or other, whether it's tiddlywinks or ditch digging. But anyway, he's the greatest living cellist. Uh, and at the end of it, he's he's playing, this man called McGillicuddy is playing for Tom. He's just playing this piece for Tom. And Tom's just sitting there. And it, 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 it prefigures the end of the book in a way, because what he does in his mind with his eyes closed 
is he reaches again he makes it to the beloved face of his wife june he gets there through the music and i don't know whether i re i don't suppose i rewrote it much or what i did to it but i just remember because in a very difficult book with a lot of dark things in it you also as the writer need to find those do you know that those places on the sheer rock face when somebody's trying to climb where you can rest and this was a moment of rest for me and he said and the book says the music pierced him the music calmed him notes arranged by mr bach no mr brook held him still in the chair his mind not jumping and running and raging like an unruly horse under the hand of a whisperer. The poem that was his wife floating clearly in front of his closed eyes. All that he had lost. Should he rage or should he quietly mourn? He had the wild sense that despite the tyranny of dates and time, she was there, not in memory, but really. And he was careful not to open those eyes. He knew the second he did so, she would be gone. But Ronnie McGillicuddy sawed his cello into sweetness, into a thousand sweetnesses, an old Jewish tune being injected into Tom, injected into Ronnie himself, swaying and even muttering like a lunatic, a poor assailed person, you would think, away with the fairies. They were both away with the fairies, and June was alive. She was alive, beautiful and wise, and she would always be there, bursting with life, calm as any old painted Madonna, as long as he did not open his eyes. He lifted both his hands and reached out to hold that longed-for face, to hold it, the soft cheeks, the dark skin, to hold it, to hold it. Do you want to share anything else about that? You know, a, a lot of the joys of writers are quite secret and, you know, not you can't really communicate them or, or they should be secret. But one of the things about writing the book for me, uh, since we're in this state of honesty, um, between Wicklow and Colorado is um, the first person I loved was called June. And I was, we were very, very young. And we were together for a few years when we were very, very young. And I never, after about the age of 19 or 20, I never knew what happened to that person. Sometimes I would hear news as if from afar of difficulties she was having or she'd married a American soldier and all, you know, and wasn't having a good time. And so I, I would hear things about her, but it, basically I never really, I never saw her since I was about 19. But of course, I mean, sometimes that sort of love is put in the hateny place, isn't it? They say, well, you know, your, your kids and it doesn't, but actually the power of the love at that age, 
is, is immeasurable. I mean, there is no physics. Even Einstein himself would have difficulty in measuring it. And I think maybe something to do with myself being Tom's age, you know, 66, when I was writing the book, um, makes you look back at those things and pray in a way that Einstein is correct, that all things are always happening everywhere at the same time. And the recovery of trying to recover that feeling I had for that person in a, in the book gave me um, an endless um, source of um, beautiful kindling and and logs, you know, to make that fire, to make that fire bright in the book. So yeah, that's what I think of when I read it. I mean, um, Bergson may have been sort of correct because we only live in Bergson's world of narrative time, but Einstein offers us something else, you know. That's, and I think that paragraph is my 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 own small victory, you know, as a writer getting to that point in the book. Small victory, but, you know, small victories are just as good as winning at Austerlitz like Napoleon or whatever. <laughs> Where do you write? In this very position. In a, we live in an old rectory, an old Church of Ireland rectory, which is has its own vexed history in this country. And this is the workroom probably of the rectors. Subsequently, though, it was derelict before we bought it, and it was called the bee room because all the equipment for beekeeping was thrown in here. Uh, so I'm very happy to work in the bee room. That's that's where I, where I am. I don't know if I'm writing sermons, but I'm doing my best anyway. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, well, I'm very fortunate. Like I said, we live in this remote part of Ireland in the mountains. It's along, uh, it's in a district called the Wicklow Way, where walkers come sometimes from afar to walk out from Dublin. So I, I have the forest above me. And in the forest, of course, there's the beautiful Irish hare with her, as if the barber has trimmed her ears. And there's deer, and there's the, the trees themselves. Uh, and e even at my great age, I do try to run as often as I can. And I run for four miles up in the mountains just to still my beating heart, as they say. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I've, I've been incredibly fortunate to have worked with the same editor in London for 20 years. He's called Angus Cargill. I mean, he's still in his mid-40s, so I think it's very unfair that I have to be in my mid-60s. So he must have been very young when we started. But um, he's the person, because there's things in books that are a bit rough and a bit raggedy. And the instinct, a lesser editor would say, let's smooth out the rough and the raggedy parts of the book. But he doesn't do that. He he. I think he actually has a special appreciation of the natural condition of, of a text. So that's he's the first person. Because uh, if I get his approbation, if I get the thumbs up from him, I have um, I have some armor then, you know, against other opinions. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, 
as poorly as everyone else does, um, disgracefully, uh, well, since I am a man, uh, unmanned by it, um, it, it, I've, I've worked in the theatre a lot, you know, I've written all these plays and uh, first nights to me are as close as I'll ever get. I mean, if they want to put me in hell, just just have me in a perpetual first night situation. That'll that'll do it. Um, that will be punishment enough. Um, and I, on the occasion, I mean, with fourteen plays, obviously not everything as they're not all going to go swimmingly because you don't know that until they don't. And um, that feeling of sitting in in a theater with your own with your play on the first night. And you can sense that the audience is not with you is a, a sort of mass rejection experience which but you know you have to be you have to be able for that i mean in the moment you you literally can't survive it and then you do you know and as regards the tribulations of being alive it's probably in a very low place but uh it, it is curious that it can re reduce you to almost to the point of disappearance as if you've never had anything happen to you in your life as if you've never nothing has ever been accepted by you know in other circumstances it's very obliterating but it is it is part of the territory i mean that's that's our you know that's our battleground that's where we have to uh, you know, you can be terribly afraid as a writer as long as the the old soldiers, uh, you know, I was writing a novel set in the First World War. I listened to all these old tapes and of soldiers from the war talking. And there's one particular man, he said, you know, we were all, this is an English guy, we were all terrified, you know. I mean, everyone was pissing their pants. I mean, li literally pissing their pants. But you didn't want to show it your terror, you know, because you didn't want to spook the fella beside you. You know, there's that sort of, like, that's why I do love writers, not just for what they write, but because they have that. Because the First World War is very writerly war, you know, you go up the ladder and somebody shoots you. <laughs> Usually that's about what, you know, more, that's more often what happens than not. And you have to be able for that. I say that in a sort of feeling slightly dishonest saying it, but you know, we've got to survive our vicissitudes or else you never reach those, you know, that, that line you quoted from Tom where the honey of your life, you know, comes on your head and then you're like, oh, well, I'm glad I got over that other business, you know, to get this to this, this bit. What is your favorite word? My favorite word um, currently is a word I discovered uh, reading for Days Without End. Um, and the word is sockdologer. And the reason I love it is because, of course, no one uses it anymore. I've been trying to get it back into currency. I, I, I'm very glad to mention it here. Um, and it means, they think it means in a boxing match, and bear in mind my daughter is a boxing journalist in the BBC, uh, the last lucky punch. You might have been in terrible shape during the fight and the other person is defeating you but if you can get in that last sockdologer of a punch 
then you probably you might win the fight because you'll knock the other poor lad out. Uh, so that's that's my favorite word, sockdollager. It's an American word. I I, I recommend it to the American listeners. Use it wisely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing this time with me. I'm so honored. It was it was beautiful time, and I'm thinking of the snow falling on you. And the sun falling on me. And I'm wondering what that means, but we'll leave it there. If you like today's show with Sebastian Barry, author of the novel Old God's Time, check out my interview with Irish author Kevin Barry. We talked about the interplay of light and dark in his work, how the sound of different Irish accents around the country bring voice to a diversity of stories in his work and writing in his mind before writing on the page. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 400 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with T.C. Boyle, Adrian Brodeur, and Elizabeth Graver. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.